Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You know, Cody... The nice thing about felonies is that oh shit we're recording aren't we? Uh, uh, the, uh, the bad thing, the bad, the bad thing about felonies. Felonies are terrible. Don't wait. commit them. Oh no, they're in. Our, the, oh, the oh, we started in the middle of our conversation about how ba- felonies are bad and don't do, yeah. don't do crimes. Be don't straight. Do, be straight. Don't do crimes. Yeah, exactly. Avoid crimes and embrace heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. The motto of this podcast. That's what we were talking about. That is what this we were talking ho- about. This is horrible, you guys. This. No, this is the best introduction this. yet, Sophie. The, the introduction we planned that we're doing now is the best one yet. Speaking of not doing crimes, Ooh. Cody, you know who was the best at not committing crimes? Uh, the best at not committing crimes. The best at not committing crimes. I mean, I was going to say Jesus, but that's the opposite. That's not true at no, all. No, he committed he so many crimes. crimes. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. the whole point. <laughs> that was um, Jesus' whole thing was yeah, crimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, huge crimer. Uh, huge crimer. Um, yeah. Watch him. He's a crimer. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Me? Joseph Viserionovich Stalin. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a... Uh, we're, did I introduce the show's name? No. This is Behind the Bastards. <laughs> Welcome to the uh, Don't Do Crimes <laughs> podcast. With Cody Johnston, uh, my co-host for today. And today, every day in this podcast, we talk about a terrible person from history and reveal details from their past that the listeners do not know. And today, we're talking about the childhood of our old best friend, 
Jay Stahl. Oh, Joey. Joey. Yeah. All right, little, Joe Steele. Little Joey. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Little <laughs> Jobo S. Buzz. This is like his baby crimes? Some of them, yeah. Some okay. baby crimes in okay. here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. Are you a fan of Joseph Stalin? I'm aware of Joseph Stalin. Okay. Okay. Not a Stalin stan. Not a, uh, a Stallhead. A Stanin. A Stanin, I guess. Uh, yeah, Stanin. Yeah, yeah. Stanin is what they call them, yeah. Joe uh, Bro. A Joe Bro. Joe Bro. Mm-hmm. There we mm-hmm. go. Um, Sophie's you... shaking her head. She does not like it. <laughs> Okay. What do you know about Stalin's childhood? Uh, not much, actually, about his childhood. That's good. So That's I'm good, here because yeah. otherwise this episode would be disappointing. Mm-hmm. I know all about. I know all about his baby crimes. <laughs> all about his his very tiny crimes. Mm-hmm. Well, Cody, Joseph Vasarianovich Jugasvili was born in 1878 in Gori, Georgia, and I will try to pronounce uh, Jugasvili close to correct, but yeah. I won't. I won't. Oh, you're doing it. It won't happen. Oh, I believe uh, in you. At the time, uh, Gori was a very tiny town on the outskirts of the Russian Empire. Sparsely populated and largely underdeveloped, the area around Gori was beautiful. The Tsar's brother kept a palace there, but it was also remote. The future ruler of Russia would count himself lucky that he came up in Gori, though. See, in the wider Caucasus region, only one in 30 children were allowed to go to school because there just weren't that many schools. In Georgia, though, one in 15 children got to have an education. Hell yeah. Uh, this is because Gori had a large merchant population and a comparatively, a comparatively outsized amount of development. The small town of 7,000 where Stalin grew up featured four schools, including a two-story church founded in 1818. In Gori, one in 10 boys attended school. He's, this is a good all place right, to come All up. right, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. won the lottery. Yeah. I mean, what is what is your ideal ratio of, of, of people to attend school? My ideal ratio is it's uh, uh, a one out of one, 10 out of 10, 30 out See, of 30, I, 50 I think out it of should 50. just be me. And, uh, out of all of them? Yeah. So like one out of billions, yeah. and it's you? Yeah, because all we really need is one podcaster and a lot of people to dig. That's you true. You need to go to school to dig. Who's uh, who's teaching you, though, at this school, then? Uh, that is a mystery. Nobody knows. You just walk into a building and you, you I just walk, walk out a building and you're educated? And I know where to tell people to dig. And oh. that is the ideal society. Mm-hmm. So you've, you're yeah. just like uh, a dig major? Yeah. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, digging and... Uh, uh, philosophy but you're not so like but you're not like good enough to do the digging yourself well there's plenty of diggers someone needs to tell them where to dig otherwise you just have a bunch of random holes right that's not gonna you want either one big hole or like very coordinated holes yeah okay Okay. yeah yeah and then i can tell people now we eat now we continue digging Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then they do it while i sip daiquiris exactly there there should be one person Yeah, which I've earned and learned how to make in school. Yes. Which is taught by a mystery. Right. All right. Okay. (laughs) Back to Stalin. Okay. (laughs) Joseph's parents were Vasarian Jugashvili and Ekaterina Galadzi. They'd been married back in 1872 when uh, Vasarian was 22 and she was 17. Now, Vasarian went by Beso uh, for regions that I'm sure make sense to Georgians, and Ekaterina went by Keke, which does kind of make sense to everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beso was handsome, uh, broad-shouldered, intelligent, and industrious. Uh, He was a cobbler by trade and widely seen as the best bootmaker in town. Keke was gorgeous and charming and uh, beloved by just about everybody in the town. Uh, They had conceived two children before Joseph's birth. 
Bezo was, in his wife's words, almost mad with happiness when the first, Mikhail, was born in 1875. Tragically, he died two months later, driving Bezo equally mad with grief. He began to drink. But this was the 19th century, and you didn't let something like a dead baby stop you from rolling the dice on another baby. Mm-hmm. The Jugashvili's had another son a year later. Gergi. Gergi? G-E-I-R-G-I. Uh, he yeah. died six months Gergi. later, which, yeah, I'm not going to be able Gergi. to pronounce all these. Gergi. 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 Yeah. He died six months later, which, from an optimistic point of view, is a 300% improvement in his length yeah, of survival over no, the first kid. They're doing it. They're making progress. Do you think pointing that out to them would have made them less sad? I really don't. <laughs> I feel like People maybe it would just remind the them of the, other, of the other child. You know, when you look at this statistically, you're a way better parent than you were before. Look at, look at how much, oh, that's called learning. That's growth right there. Mm-hmm. That's growth right there. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's sort of like when you look at the number of people who die on my jet ski, Mm-hmm. And just it, it just total numbers. It looks like I'm a bad jet ski pilot. But when you compare the number of people who've died on my jet ski in the last three years to the prior nine years, I'm a great jet ski pilot. I've improved immensely. See? there Exactly. That's, yeah. that's how you look at statistics. That is how you look at statistics. Mm-hmm. So when Joseph was born that December in eight, of 1878, his mom and his dad had reason to be less than enthusiastic about his chances of survival. Soso, as they called him, was weak, fragile, and thin. The second and third toes of his left foot were webbed. He was sick constantly, and he was always on the verge of death. And I don't normally say if only that baby had died, but this is Stalin, so I will say, <laughs> right. if, if only, only that, that baby, baby had died. died. <laughs> uh, two out of three, you were oh, so close. <laughs> I thought third time was a charm. Oh, no. Yeah. Before Joseph's birth, Beso had vowed, uh, just let the child survive, and I'll crawl to Jerry on my knees with the child on my shoulders. But of course, promises to God are the easiest ones to ignore. And once Joseph <laughs> came out alive, Beso sort of forgot about this. Mm-hmm. But then Joseph got sick, and Beso assumed this was God being like, you made a promise, and now you're welching, so I'm going to murder your baby. Because that's God. That was the deal. You. That was the deal. That yeah. was the deal. So he and Keke walked to the church and donated a sheep to the priests. Now, unlike his older brothers, Stalin survived, and in the early years, the family thrived. Gori was a poor town, and most of the houses were made of mud. But Bezos' shoemaking business did well enough for him to hire apprentices, and eventually ten employees. For a while, the family lived well. Keke later recalled, our family happiness was limited. One of Bezos' apprentices later said, he lived better than anyone else of our profession. They always had butter in their house. Mm, so that right. gives you an idea of like where things are for yeah. society at this point. He's got butter! Yeah, butter's good. Butter's good. I get <laughs> it. I good. get it. Yeah. Now, this would later be very embarrassing for adult Stalin, because communist heroes are not supposed to come from prosperous middle-class roots. They're not allowed to have butter. Yeah, they're not supposed to be butter havers. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. They, they, you get fucking you get fucking starved you're, to death for having butter. You're a butter and haver. Stalin's get the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. As an adult, he ruefully admitted, "I'm not the son of a worker. My father had a shoe workshop, employing apprentices, an exploiter. We didn't live badly, and that was like." If only we'd lived badly. Right. Oh, I wish I wish I had harder times. <laughs> but luckily for his future socialist credentials, his family happiness did not last long. Bezo had started drinking after his first son's death and continued drinking for the rest of his life. He made friends with a local Russian exile named Paka, who'd been basically forced to flee to Georgia for his connections to a group called the People's Will, a terrorist organization who'd repeatedly tried and eventually succeeded to murder the Tsar. Some of Joseph's earliest memories were made talking to Poka, who liked little Soso and bought him a canary. Like Bezo, Poco was a hardcore alcoholic. 
One winter, he passed out in the snow and died, and Beso had to go to one. Of- <laughs> Sorry, I thought, didn't know it, the, the, that was really abrupt. I yeah, I was gonna be yeah, like, that's fucking life back then. Everybody <laughs> knows someone who dies in the snow. No, I know. I just it it really sounded like you were like, here's like a fun little story about a time he got drunk, but no. then the story ended. <laughs> All right. Like all Stalin stories, mm-hmm. okay. in a miserable, miserable, unthinkable death. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. So after his drinking buddy died, Beso had to go to one of the local priests, Father Chuck Viani, to find a drinking buddy. As an adult, Stalin had a vivid memory of his dad and the priest stumbling home, singing out a tune. He recalled the priest saying, you're a good bloke, Beso, even for a shoemaker. And his father responded, you're a priest, but what a priest. I love you. All right. <laughs> all right. So, okay. Good times in Georgia. Yeah, 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 some characters. Some characters. Good times. Now, Bezo was not a happy drunk, and as he descended more and more into drink, he became increasingly obsessed with local rumors about Joseph's parentage. See, Keke was close friends with a guy named Davrichiwi, uh, the chief of police. The town mayor later testified that Joseph was actually this guy's real son. There were also rumors that a famous explorer who'd crossed through the town, named Prisavalsky, had bedded Keke and produced Joseph. Some townsfolk declared that one of the town's few Jewish men was his real dad, but the most commonly cited potential father for Stalin was a guy named Yakov Ignatishvili. Ignatishvili was the wealthiest man in town, a wine merchant and a great boxer. Keke worked in his household from time to time, and Ignatishvili did take a deep liking to the family. He was named Joseph's godfather and later paid for his education. There's no way to know the truth, but we absolutely knew they were rumors. Some locals accused Keke of basically being a sex worker. Even decades later, a reporter from the Washington Post who went to Gori and talked to some of the people old enough to have known Keke and Joseph uh, found claims that young Stalin called his mother the prostitute when they had arguments. Hmm. So Hmm. we don't really know who right. Stalin's fa- yeah or if Keke was in fact a prostitute or if she was just really well liked like right it's, right like, and that's yeah. like just like a snotty thing for a kid to say yeah and it's compounded by the fact that in Georgian culture men were expected to have multiple mistresses um right. and like everybody was just fucking all the time which definitely makes it harder to know what was actually going right, on right right well <laughs> yeah. I mean what else are you gonna do what else are you going to do? It's George. I'll tell you what else you're going to do later because it's fun as hell. Oh, good. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Keke herself did little to downplay the rumors that she had been sleeping around a lot and Joseph could be anybody's kid. Sure. Uh, in her old age, she urged Lavrenti Beria, uh, the, the head of the NKVD, Stalin's like secret police. Uh, she urged his wife, Nina, to take illicit lovers and basically insinuated that she'd done the same, sure. saying, when I was young, I cleaned house for people. And when I met a good looking boy, I didn't waste the opportunity. Oh. So who knows? I mean, there, yeah. there it is. <laughs> yeah. As an aside, Keke was quite a character. Uh, the book Young Stalin by Sebastian Sebag Montfiore uh, includes a number of bizarre anecdotes about her, usually based on her own recollections. And I'm going to read you one right now to give you a, a sense of this woman's personality. Quote, She managed to attract Soso with a flower, at which point Keke jovially pulled out her breasts and showed them to the toddler, who ignored the flower and dived for the breasts. But the drunken Russian exile Poka was spying on them and burst out laughing. So I buttoned up my dress. <laughs> So this is like her playing with the little playful, baby Stalin play, as a kid. Play, yeah. Playful. Okay. Yeah, okay. these are like the stories she tells to everybody when her son is the ruler of Russia. Right, 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 right. <laughs> she's, she's a character. Yeah. Uh, Keke kind of rules. Yeah, 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 all right, all right. Yeah. 
So most historians seem to think that Beso was in fact Joseph's real father, but the rumors at least were real, and they drove an increasingly drunken Beso into regular rages. On one occasion, he came home, wasted, and threw Joseph on the ground so hard he peed blood for days. He would regularly charge home drunk, looking for young Stalin and screaming, where is Keke's little bastard, hiding under the bed? Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Less, yeah. Less fun character. Less whimsical. Yeah, yeah, things switch hard in old-timey Georgia between whimsical and beating a child until he pees blood. Yeah, for a couple yeah. of days. Yep. One of uh, young Stalin's schoolmates later recalled, undeserved beatings made the boy as hard and heartless as the father himself. Uh, and this person came to believe that Bezos' abuse is how Stalin learned to hate people. Mm-hmm. Stalin did in fact spend much of his early childhood hiding from his drunken father or watching his dad beat his mom by the time he was five his dad's business was in shambles and Keke was increasingly supporting the family she started to fight back too punching her husband in retaliation for his violence this eventually cowed Bezo and by the time his Joseph was six his father had fled the home oh. and this seems like the best case scenario right like yeah. the, the, it's like the lifetime movie like she's abused but then she learns to fight back and Kicks the evil out. father leave, leaves yeah. the house Unfortunately, violence doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as one friend of the family later recalled, quote, his mother was head of the family now, and the fist which had subdued his father was now applied to the upbringing of her son. She beat him unmercifully for disobedience. So that's kind of so, the reality. So a cycle yeah. of violence, you're saying. Yeah, if you learn to solve your problems with punching, maybe you probably you'll solve punch all your, your problems with punching. Yeah, it's the tragedy of the fists. Mm bummer yeah i came on here to have a good time robert a good time learning about jay stall <laughs> yep yeah yeah apparently all right decades later on his last visit home to see his mother in the 1930s dictator of all russia joseph stalin asked his mother why she'd beaten him so much she replied it didn't do you any harm Ugh. But, uh... Yeah, I shouldn't have said Keke rules. Uh, <laughs> right, like... I, she's a character, though. What if yeah. I sort of gesture to everything around yeah. us? Yeah. Did you no harm? Okay. Yeah. Now, Stalin's biographers are very much sort of of multiple minds on this. Sebastian Sebag Montfiore, who is certainly the most entertaining Stalin biographer, draws a direct line between all this childhood abuse and Stalin's future violence. Um, And he also points out that Gori was a wildly violent town in a a pretty fun way. And I'm going to quote directly (laughs) from the book Young Stalin now. Gori was one of the last towns to practice the picturesque and savage custom of free-for-all town brawls with special rules but no holds-barred violence. The boozing, praying, and fighting were all interconnected, with drunken priests acting as referees. The saloon bars of Gori were incorrigible stews of violence and crime. Town brawls, wrestling tournaments, and schoolboy gang warfare were the free Gorelli fighting traditions. At festivals, Christmas and Shrovetide before Lent, both quarters fielded a parade led by transvestites or actors riding as carnival kings on camels and donkeys, surrounded by pipe players and singers in fancy dress. At the Kinoba Carnival to celebrate Georgia's 1634 victory over Persia, one actor played the Georgian Tsar, the, uh, another the Persian Shah, who was soon pelted with fruit, then doused in water. The males in each family, from children upwards, also paraded, drinking wine and singing until night fell, when the real fun began. This assault of free boxing, the sport of Krivi, was a mass duel with rules. Boys of three wrestled other three-year-olds. Then children fought together. Then teenagers and finally the men threw themselves into an incredible battle by which time the town was completely out of control a state that lasted into the following day even at school where classes fought classes shops were often pillaged what the 
<laughs> Isn't that fucking awesome? That's ins- that's wild. <laughs> that's that's so cool. What? <laughs> like that's like that's the only town that's does the what that, no it's not the only town it was one of the last ones but okay. that used to be super common in big chunks of like eastern europe and the caucasus this is the alternative to sex you mentioned right yeah this everybody beat the shit out of each <laughs> other like, it's, it's the, the day where we all fight unbelievable. <laughs> let's all get wasted and just ruin each other in the middle of the street yeah god the priests will be referees yeah, it's purge fight club town amazing everybody's drunk everybody's punching each other it just it sounds like the best time i mean that's like your, that's your dream that's like an amusement park right? yeah it's like the good purge like instead mm-hmm. of it being like abusive it's a way for the whole town to celebrate by just wailing on mm-hmm, each other mm-hmm. like i i <laughs> wish we still did that hey you can dream maybe you're in america you, you can do whatever you yeah, want we could make this the new holiday that could get rid of our partisan divide I think it will bring National people together. National Fist Fight Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get it, It'll get it bring all... them together to beat the shit out exactly. of each other. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone will feel a little bit better and a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. God, what a great thing that would be yeah. if we had universal health care. There it is. <laughs> that, or, or, or legal street drinking, but you need one of the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first, so first term, universal health care, and then second term is like, well, now we got to fight each other. Yeah, now we have to fight each now other. Now that we know we'll be taken care of, now we can we get We got to get our money's shit. worth from this fucking health care exactly. shit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, I wish we did that just as a podcasting team. Like as a... Like a <laughs> Like a team building retreat? Yeah, like we all fight in a pit and Sophie gets really drunk and dressed as a priest and Mm -hmm. and referees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? It's a a good plan. Sophie, we're doing this. You've got a new uh, job. This is how we're celebrating Shrovetide when we Mm -hmm. figure out when Shrovetide is. Yeah, we're going to figure it out and we're we're (laughs) going to do some trust falls. But then... Katie? Then we're going to beat each other up. We miss Katie. Trust fights. Yeah. Oh, Katie's going to be in the pit with everybody. Mm-hmm, We're mm-hmm. all going to be. We're all in the it's pit. Gonna, she's got good reach. It's going to be quite a fist fight. Yeah. Mm. Well, you're going to have to change your attitude because you're yeah. you're going to be you're, you're going to be, be the jerk. referee yeah. and the priest. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. She's, I, she's turning around. Yeah. She's turning around, around on it. I'm just trying to picture that outfit. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. It's all about the outfit, like and then everybody. Of, yeah. Sounds like a lot of black and white. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of red from the blood. Oh, I oh. I bet we could get a lot of businesses to support like a national fist fight day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, like just like we'll put your name on our jerseys and yeah. I, I hate this. Continue. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Katie, it's easy. Okay. It's easy to draw a direct line between the gigantic town-wide beatdowns that Joseph uh, <laughs> like participated what? in <laughs> as a small child, uh, and the terrific violence that he unleashed as the Red Czar of the USSR. Uh, citation another, needed, Robert. I mean, come on. Well, <laughs> there's actually a lot of disagreement buddy. about this. There's a lot of disagreement about this. Right. Uh, another Stalin historian, Stephen Kotkin, cautions against that kind of thinking in his biography, Stalin. Quote, a sizable chunk of humanity was beaten by one or more parents, nor did Gori suffer from an especially violent oriental culture. Of these town-wide fistfights, Kotkin notes, such uh, festive violence, madcap bare fists followed by sloppy embraces, was typical of the Russian Empire, from Ukrainian market towns to Siberian villages. Gori did not stand out in the least. So basically, everybody is doing this. Like, it's weird to be like, to focus on how this affected Mm. Stalin's rule when it was like, this was just the norm. 
Yeah. Um, so, well, two th- things I guess I take away from that is one is that we should definitely do this now because we if, should definitely if, if they're do arguing this now. that it yeah. didn't affect yeah. him, then it won't affect us, and we should do it. Um, it absolutely. But nobody's also, arguing with that, <laughs> right? Yeah. But also, um, most of those uh, people who experienced that didn't become dictators, so there's not really like a control group, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the point is that, like, the violent, the kind of violence unleashed under Stalin was new. Um, mm-hmm. But every generation of Russian ruler prior to Stalin had kind of grown up in the same Experienced violent culture. Experienced that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, the, like, so it's weird to be like, suddenly it, it mattered. Right. Like, right, like right. obviously, like, everything that happened to Stalin mattered because he wound up with, like, this kind of, like, incredible power. Right, right. But, it's weird to focus just on this thing that was a factor in all of these other people's lives who didn't do that. Right. It's more just like, well, this is yeah. uh, not the reason, but it is an yeah. element of, you know, what led him. Yeah. 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 And uh, we're going to talk more about um, Joey Stahl and what made mm-hmm. him into the man he became. But first, you know what Stalin would have loved, Cody, as a committed communist? Um. I was going to say beating the shit out of people. <laughs> Products town, and services, town. Cody. Oh, okay, okay, okay. If there's one thing communists love, All it's right. capitalism. All right, okay. Yep. Uh, Here we go. Yeah, St- Stalin sending out a lot of promo codes. Oh, Stalin loved promo he loved codes. promo codes. If you needed to know where to buy a mattress, mm-hmm. Joseph Stalin was the guy to ask. I believe that. Yeah, that's why they call them Caspers, because of all the go- Oh, we shouldn't oh, make that joke, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Ad break Products. time. Yeah. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com behind. That's mintmobile.com behind. 
Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We're back. We were talking about the cargo cult of masculinity uh, and how all those weird Daily Wire Ben Shapiro guys love to pose with cigars uh, and other like totems of masculinity without actually doing anything that might be considered brave or courageous. And, uh, you know, it's frustrating and annoying and deeply irritating, but it might be why this right-wing power grab has been such like a slow creep rather than mm-hmm. the kind of things we see people like Stalin carry out, people like Hitler carry out, people who, while they were gigantic pieces of shit, grew up being very accustomed to immediate and terrible violence. Right, and, like, they were very hard Pussyfoot around. Yeah. yeah. Um, as yeah. opposed to yeah, all these like... Uh, Ivy League, Ivy League dorks in their leather chairs. Ivy League chairs. dorks with their leather chairs and cigars talking about how it's a republic, not a democracy, and mm-hmm. nobody needs to really vote. And yeah, but but doing it, d- dressing it up so it doesn't sound like they're saying we should have fascism. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, let's go anyway. back to the good old-fashioned clean living of Joseph Stalin. Heck yeah. This it's probably fair lover. to say right. <laughs> that historians focus too much on the darker aspects of Stalin's upbringing because you've got this guy who killed millions of people. So let's talk about how he was beaten as a kid, how his right. town had all these gigantic drunken fights, um, how he was impoverished and abused. Um, 
But Joseph actually had, like, focusing on all that stuff, it's real, it's important, it's a factor in what he grew up to be. But it's also important to note that Joseph had, all things considered, a pretty happy childhood, considering the time he grew up and the place that he grew up. And he said so repeatedly as an adult. Even the fact that his father's business collapsed when he was 10 and impoverished his family wasn't hugely traumatic. Uh, He later joked he became a proletarian, so his ruin was my advantage. The same year his father left, Joseph caught smallpox when an epidemic swept through town, killing six of his godfather's children. Young Stalin survived, perhaps thanks to a faith healer, uh, and his, his mother took him to in desperation. But his face was horribly scarred, and the other children nicknamed him Poxy. Luckily, Joseph and Keke had a wide circle of family friends who absolutely adored young Stalin. They paid the family's medical bills and helped secure Joseph admission into the very best of local schools. So he has all these traumas, but he's also hugely supported by this community that thinks he's brilliant and loves him from a very early age. He never feels like he's alone. He's unsupported. Yeah, he's not isolated at all. He's got a community of support. A community who, like, is willing to sacrifice for him, which is not emphasized enough, like, in people talking about his upbringing. Like, this is as much of a factor as him getting hit by his mom and stuff yeah um because that's i mean it's what we all want we want a uh, supportive community for our children yeah now um these wide circle of family friends also helped secure joseph admission into the very best of the schools in gory which is not that he needed a whole lot of help he needed the money but he was brilliant as a child and when he sat the examination he did so well that the school started him off in the second grade immediately so he just skipped the first grade because he was such like an autodidact so learned already uh, Keke didn't have much money, but Joseph's wealthy godfather ensured he showed up to that first day of school in style. One of his classmates later recalled, I saw among the school children an unknown boy wearing a large formal Georgian coat down to his knees, new boots with high legs, a tight wide leather belt, and a black peak cap with lacquered visors shining in the sun. This very short person, quite thin, was wearing tight trousers and boots and a pleated shirt with a scarf and a red chintz school bag. No one else dressed like that in the whole class, the whole school. Schoolboys surrounded him in fascination. So he is uh, kind of a hipster. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, Dressing for, I guess, attention. Well, but also, like, being dressed by these adults who adore him for attention because they think he's special. Right. Um, and yeah, they're they, willing to, like... They yeah. want to present They want to present, present their special boy to the world. Yeah. yeah. And, and as the strangest boy in school, Joseph was obviously a target for bullies, but he gave as good as he got. The town priest, Father Charkviani, claimed, there was hardly a day when someone had not beaten him up, sent him home crying, or when he hadn't beaten up someone else. So he is always fighting as a boy, which yeah. is normal in like in Georgia at this point in time. Right, right. Like, I mean, he yeah, been he's, a weird he's from kid. the fight yeah. town. He's, he's from the fight yeah, town like, where yeah. we show our love through fist punches. Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, I mean, as soon as you, you bring attention to yourself at that age, yeah. you're like, all right, I'm a target now, and this is yeah, how it's Yeah, I'm a target be. now, and that's just going to make me into a tough son of a bitch, yeah. which he objectively was. One time he fought with his friend Iramashvili in the playground. The fight wound up as a draw, but when Iramashvili turned around, Stalin leapt on him from behind and tackled him to the grass. He was famous for fighting dirty and was regularly beaten within an inch of his life as a result. Young Stalin developed a habit of changing out of his fancy clothing with its tall white collars after bidding his mother farewell in the morning. It was the only way to stop it from being stained with his and other children's blood. 
<laughs> so this is yeah this was a goal for him he yeah. was like this is my plan i'm gonna get the shit kicked out of me or i'm gonna kick the shit out of someone else and i really don't care which right, because it is a day of the week it is a day of the yeah. week <laughs> and right. i am 11 he's like a little kid and he's a time to go get covered in blood yeah <laughs> like t- i do every single day <laughs> taking off his fancy clothes putting on his fighting outfit <laughs> Again, I believe all children should be raised this way. Mm-hmm. Um, this is yes, convincing. You've made, you've made that clear. <laughs> <laughs> like kids in all towns that lack sufficient internet access, the children of Gori divided up into rival street gangs based on neighborhood. These gangs battled regularly with each other, but they also played, and there was an odd kind of equality in the streets. Stalin played and fought with the children of princes and generals. He and his friends would wander off into the woods with knives, bows, and slingshot to damage whatever they came across. <laughs> One fa- <laughs> Just like... <laughs> On a mission to damage. Here's your weapons, like, boys. Go, go off into something. the woods and hurt things. Unbelievable. <laughs> hurt and destroy time. Okay. <laughs> your boys, this is what you do. Thank you, Papa. Gonna go destroy something. <laughs> One favorite target was the apple orchard of a local prince. And Georgia's filled with princes. Like, mm-hmm. prince means, like, special, like, fancy boy thing. There, there's, like, you're, like, you're definitely, like, of a higher class than other people. But, like, everywhere's littered with princes. Right, They're right. filthy with them. So one of their favorite targets was the apple orchard of a local prince. One time, young Stalin set this orchard on fire. And we don't really know why. <laughs> Property destruction. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He just liked doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, again, it was a day of the week. It was a day of the week, and just another reason I deeply identify with Joseph Stalin. Yeah, he hadn't gotten into a big enough fight. He definitely got yeah. into a fight earlier that day. Um, yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't enough, so we had to start a fire, which is essentially a fight with the land. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Man versus nature today. Yeah, uh, I'm going to quote again from Sebastian Sebag Montfiore's Young Stalin quote. Soso was very naughty, his younger friend Georgie recalls, always naughty. running through the streets. Yeah, right. He loved his catapult and homemade bowl. Once a herdsman was bringing his herd home, when Soso jumped out and catapulted a cow in the head, the <laughs> ox went crazy, the herd stampeded, and the herdsman chased Soso, who disappeared, already elusive. He used to slip through my hands like a fish, wrote another school friend, and it was no use trying to catch him. Soso once terrorized a shopkeeper by igniting some explosive cartridges <laughs> that destroyed his shop. His mother had to hear a lot of cursing about her son <laughs> yeah her son the terrorist <laughs> her like, son the terrorist Jesus. just blowing up things as a small child believable i mean oh. believable but mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's amazing <laughs> this on another occasion little, little fancy terrorist this <laughs> this little, little fancy terrorist <laughs> his little prince boots just going out starting fires uh, little lord fauntleroy suits <laughs> yeah. and just blowing up businesses with explosives uh <laughs> On another occasion, Soso shoved a young child into a fast-moving river and almost drowned him. When the boy complained, young Stalin shrugged and said, in essence, well, you figured out how to swim, didn't you? Dang. <laughs> that is that is some abusive shit. Oh, uh, he's the best. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, called, it's called tough love. It's not... Yeah. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Stalin was also known to be a steadfast friend, willing oh, to good. fight much larger boys without a second thought to defend one of his friends. Mm-hmm. One of these friends later wrote that Stalin reserved most of his rage and violence for, quote, people who, though through greater age or strength, dominated others because they seemed like his father. He developed a vengeful feeling against everyone positioned above himself. 
So he's for for the people, he's fighting for the people. He's a, yeah. He's taking out he's taking out the bullies. And I think that might be a better sort of source of kind of some of his early, like this idea, like he has this domineering father and then this domineering mother, and it in, inculcates him in this like, like inability to have anyone in charge. Of yeah, him. absolutely. Um, yeah, you're going to resist any kind of authority um, and yeah. view anything as, yeah, being a bully. And you're, so you're going to. But bully he him. desperately needs to have authority over his friends, like mm-hmm. over the people around him. Like, and he'll, he'll fucking take a bullet for you if you will do whatever he do, says. Yeah, if you'll be... But yeah. if you resist him at all, he's going to light an orchard on fire. Because <laughs> then... Into the water, yeah. Because then you're the yeah. bully. Mm-hmm. By saying no, thank you <laughs> to whatever yeah. he says. Joseph had a pathological need to be in charge, and his friendship was definitely contingent upon being the unquestioned leader of any group he found himself in. His buddy Iramashvili wrote that he, quote, could be a good friend so long as one bowed to his dictatorial will. When one of his friends stole communion bread and another boy ratted him out, Joseph, quote, cursed his life, called him an informer, a spy, made him hated by the other boys, and then he beat him black and blue. Yeah. Mm. On March 13th, 1881, when Joseph was three, the Emperor Alexander II had been assassinated by members of the People's Will via giant comical bombs thrown into his carriage. His successor, Alexander III, had cracked down on dissent. For some reason, this included banning the Georgian language from being taught in schools. And so by the time Soso was in school, he and his students were required to read, write, and speak in Russian. Slipping up and speaking in his native tongue was punishable by, quote, having to stand in a corner or holding a long piece of wood for a whole morning or being locked in a detention cell without food or water and in complete darkness until late evening. I love school. Yeah, good times. Teacher, make those kids hold a piece of wood for a whole morning. Learning is good. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. The most despised teacher in the school was a man named Lavrov. He was a Russian and who nursed a violent hatred of Georgian culture. He made young Joseph, the best student in class, his assistant, a job that mainly involved having Joseph inform on any student speaking in Georgian. Now, young Stalin had zero issue informing on other kids, as we'll see, but he was a proud Georgian, and he was not willing to put up with basically clamping down on his ancestral language. So he gathered up a small gang of 18-year-old students and ambushed Lavrov in an empty classroom. Stalin promised to murder his teacher teacher if he continued to punish kids for speaking Jordan. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Which is a nice similarity between him and uh, uh, fucking Saddam Hussein. Like, they both threatened to murder one of their educational leaders at one point while they were school Yeah, children. yeah. That's an interesting parallel right there. Well, I mean, you know, uh, Saddam was a big fan of J-Stall, so. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a bold, revolutionary leading yeah. the uh it's like one of those yeah those uh late 80s movies where you take over the school no more homework no more homework <laughs> but like you murder yeah. the, the teacher instead yeah you have teenagers kill your teacher for you uh-huh uh-huh just like in i want to say revenge of the nerds no that was just a rapey movie yeah I've, yeah. yeah different kind of bad <clears throat> yeah uh lavrov backed down uh in the face of these threats because um, you don't want to get not, murdered yeah because he didn't want to get uh-huh. murdered <laughs> Now, it would not be accurate to view Stalin as just some hard-nosed child gangster. He also loved many of his teachers and was beloved by them. Uh, His favorite was the singing teacher, Simon. Simon wrote that young Stalin had a beautiful, sweet, high voice and was always his first choice for solos. He also noted that Soso had a gift for working a crowd and performing. In fact, he was so good at this that he started up a side business as a wedding singer. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. Young Stalin... Just burning down vineyards, uh, orchards, uh-huh. uh, uh, f- constant fist fights and catapulting cows. 
and a wedding singer. All right. Okay. Complicated (laughs) guy, you know? Yeah. Simon recalled people would turn up just to watch him sing, saying, let's go see how the Jugashvili voy amazes everyone with that voice. Wow. Yeah. All right. Joseph was also a gifted painter and actor, and even a comedian. All of his classmates agreed he was something of a prodigy, talented at just about everything he tried. This was not easy for him. Young Stalin spent all of his spare time reading and constantly had his nose in a book. He would walk around town with books shoved into the belt of his trousers. He was the very top of the class and never skipped school or showed up late. But Sosa was also a good tutor and volunteered hours of his time to help worse students in class with their studies. He happily volunteered to inform on his classmates, too, whenever they were late to class or cheated on tests. He was nicknamed the Gendarme, which means his classmates all basically called him a cop. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a narc. <laughs> yeah. Bezo, his father, was impoverished and frequently out of work by the time Joseph was an adolescent, and normally he was happy to let KK take the boy. But from time to time, he'd be seized by a drunken impulse to kidnap his son and take charge of him. <coughs> At one point, according to KK, Bezo burst into the school drunkenly to grab Soso by force. After this, Joseph had to be smuggled into class every day under the coats of his uncles. <laughs> KK claimed that everyone in town helped to hide him, lying to Bezo that he'd switch schools. So. Jeez. This this is a complicated young boy. Yeah, a lot of stuff going on with this kid. My God, it is a a full childhood. He's got to he's got to get smuggled in, and then yeah. also find a place to change into his fighting clothes after he gets smuggled in. <laughs> So Stalin's early childhood was complex and multifaceted, filled with abuse and trauma, but also love and an incredibly supportive community. None of the shit Bezov put him through stopped Stalin from consistently excelling academically. In fact, the only thing that made him miss school for any length of time was his apparently magnetic attraction to being run over by carriages. (laughs) I... You're taking me on a wild ride here, Robert. (laughs) What are you... I don't, know, I don't even know why I'm surprised at this point that yeah. that was a sentence that you said out loud to me about a person. You cannot stop young Stalin from getting hit by fucking carriages. You know like, what? I wouldn't want to. Uh, I'm going to quote again from young Stalin. Please do. The boys enjoyed playing chicken, grabbing the axles of galloping carriages. Perhaps this was how Stalin was hurt. Once again, the poor mother was mad with fear, but the doctors treated him for free, or Ignatishvili was quietly paying the bills. Keke, her son said later, also called in a village quack who doubled as the local barber. The accident gave him yet another reason, on top of his webbed foot, pockmarks, and rumors of bastardy, for vigilance and inferiority, for being different. It permanently damaged his left arm, which means he could never be the beau ideal of the Georgian warrior. He later said it prevented him from dancing properly, but he still managed to fight. Yeah, he did. So, he gets hit by a carriage, playing chicken with his friends, Mm -hmm. fucks up his arm. Uh, now, Joseph did not want to be a shoemaker, which is what his dad uh, wanted him to yeah, do. Yeah, um, I get that vibe. It's probably not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so after his dad kidnapped him, he returned home <laughs> and went back to school. Um, uh-huh. And the priest in Tiflis... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. So his dad kidnaps him um, at a couple of different points. And at one point, like, takes him into, like, the town to go, like, learn to be a shoemaker. Um, and basically, Keke has to go to, like, the priest in Tiflis and force um, them to, like, make his dad give... Uh, their son back to her. Um, And Sosa continues his studies until 1890, when on a school trip with the choir, he's hit by another runaway carriage. Sure, yeah. Um, Yeah. The 12-year-old Stalin's legs were shattered by the wooden wheels, and he was taken to Tiflis again and spent months out of school recovering. His legs were so damaged that for the rest of his life, he walked with an awkward sideways gait. From this, he acquired his second nickname, 
crimped. Hmm. So people call him pockmarked and and crippled, yeah. basically. And a cop. Yeah. And a cop. Yeah. yeah. Three nicknames. Yeah. He was brought to Tiflis, the nearby city, to recover. Now, by this point, uh, Soso had moved there to work in a shoe factory, and once he learned his son was in town, he waited outside the hospital and, yet again, kidnapped Stalin and hid him from his mother. He gets, kid gets kidnapped Jeez, almost as many times God. as he gets hit by carriages. <laughs> <laughs> Wide range of fun activities. And again, he's like 12 at this point. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. This is like right after he uh, yeah. got a bunch of 18-year-olds to threaten to murder his teacher. Yes, yeah. Bezo forcibly enrolled his son as an apprentice at the shoe factory where he worked. When Keke tried to take Joseph back, he screamed at her. Uh, Bezo screamed at her. Uh, you want my son to be a bishop? Over my dead body, he'll be educated. I'm a shoemaker, and my son will be one, too. Keke did not take this lying down. Uh, 1800s Georgia was, you know, pretty obviously a very patriarchal place. Uh, fathers tended to get their way. But that did not happen in this case. Biographer Stephen Kotkin writes... Keke brooked no compromise. She rejected the Tiflis Church's authorities' proposed solutions that Social be allowed to sing in their Tiflis school choir or remaining with his father. She accepted nothing less than Soso's return to Gori for the start of the next school year in September 1890. Her triumph over her husband in a deeply patriarchal society was supported by family friends who took the woman's side and by the boy himself. In the parental tug of war between becoming a priest or a cobbler, Soso preferred school and therefore his mother. Mm -hmm. So it's like... A really strange thing that she gets her way in this. Yeah. And Stalin gets his way in this. It's um, kind of tells you what sort of person she was. Right, right. Interesting that, yeah, if the, uh, if society, uh, <laughs> like, that's an issue. And if the dad got his way, then uh, things would have turned out way differently. They might have. Um, <laughs> they might have. Might have. Might have. Might have. Uh Stalin's months of absence from school seemed to have no impact on his grades. He caught up instantly and was right back to being at the top of his class. But his behavior was notably different after his second kidnapping from his father. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, weird how that changes a person. Weird how that has an impact. Uh, he started facing regular punishment from his teachers, and he organized his first protest against a school inspector named Butersky, who viciously punished students for using Georgian. Stalin organized a protest, which, fueled by his rhetoric, almost turned into a riot. And this is his first, like, mass demonstration yeah. that Stalin organizes. In 1892, when Joseph was 14, a group of three peasant bandits were captured by the police and sentenced to die by hanging. Because it was the 1890s, the school's teachers decided that the right thing to do was to take their young students out to go watch several strangers die horrifically. Some biographers suspect, again, that this brutality had a deep impact on Stalin's future violence. But this misses the point. The condemned men had stolen a cow and killed a policeman. They'd spent months living in the forest, attacking rich people and handing out food to other peasants. They were basically Georgian Robin Hoods, only not very good at it. Stalin and his friends sympathized with the bandits, and they felt it was wrong for the priests who taught them, Thou shalt not kill, to participate in gleefully sanctioned state murder. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. I mean... Yeah, so Stalin winds up like very sympathetic with these revolutionaries and kind of recognizing gradually that the like the order of his society is fucked up yeah um partly as a result of this like it doesn't seem like he gains like a bloodthirst for execution from this this right this it's more of yeah a view of society and less on like what to do about yeah. it yeah now cody you know what won't execute peasants for stealing a cow and killing a cop i do know it's products what is it? it's products and it's, it's services. products and services that's right that's right all of the products and services in this are firmly pro cow stealing. Mm-hmm. And uh, can we say that, Sophie? Orchard fires. Sure. 
Orchard fires or, too. Definitely pro orchard fires. Yeah. So light an orchard on fire and buy some of these products. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends, we're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
We're back. So, Stalin loved to read. Big, big bookworm as a kid. And one of his favorite books as a teenager was Darwin's The Origin of Species. He fell madly in love with the book, and he pushed it on all of his friends. Darwin's theories seemed to have helped push the young Joseph, whose mother desperately wanted him to be a priest, into atheism. One of his friends, Grisha, later recalled a day when he and Stalin lay on the grass talking about the injustice of poverty. He claims young Stalin suddenly said, God's not unjust. He doesn't actually exist. We've been deceived. If God existed, he'd have made the world more just. When Grisha pressed him on this, he referred his friend to Charles Darwin. The revelation did not immediately stop Stalin from pursuing a career in the clergy, though. For a young, brilliant boy in a town like Gori, the seminary was basically the only way to ever actually build a future or get an education. So when he was 15 years old, Stalin took the entrance exams for the spiritual seminary in Tiflis, Georgia. This was an extremely prestigious institution, and Keke had to, once again, pull strings and call in favors from friends to get Stalin in, even with his exceptional grades. The spiritual seminary was not cheap, and Stalin was by far the poorest child in the school. Keke had to work her fingers to the bone in order to pay for his schooling, but to her, it was worth it to give her son a chance to become a bishop. Now, the seminary enforced a brutal schedule for its students. Soso was expected to wake up at 7 a.m., attend a prayer session before and after breakfast, and then attend classes and prayers until 10 p.m. The schedule was only broken up by lunch and dinner and an hour and a half in the late afternoon where he was free to go about in the city. Despite, or perhaps because of this discipline, the seminary in Tiflis had a tendency to breed rebels. A huge number of the Bolshevik rebels who overthrew the Tsar's empire came from this specific seminary in Georgia. Wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, it was like a school for revolution. Revolutionaries, yeah. unwittingly. Right, 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 right. Yeah. 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 In 1885, a little before Stalin went there, a student had beaten up one of his teachers for saying <laughs> Georgian was a dog's language. The next year, that same rector was murdered with a sword. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. This ain't your daddy's grand school. My gosh, yeah, yeah. Some escalation. All yeah, right. yeah. There were constant student strikes and protests, and years later, another Bolshevik would claim no secular school produced as many atheists as the Tiflis Seminary. Mm. Outside of class hours, Stalin drank and probably carried on a handful of romantic liaisons. There are even semi-credible rumors that he may have fathered a child during this time. But the bulk of his time was spent writing poetry. He contributed several of his poems to a local newspaper, and they were good enough that Ilya... Chavchadavis, I'm not going to pronounce that right, the greatest poet in Georgia, met directly with Stalin. He ordered the magazine to publish five of Stalin's poems and called him the young man with the burning eyes. Mm. Poetry was huge in Georgia at the time, in a way that we really can't understand, and poets were some of the land's greatest heroes. And Stalin actually becomes famous for his poetry while he's still a teenager. Um, he wrote it under the pseudonym Socello, but he was extremely popular and, and famous as a poet before he was ever famous as a revolutionary. And his work is actually still praised as quite good today. Um, it's like one of those things, you have a lot of stories of like bad artists who become dictators yeah, and Stalin's yeah, the yeah. opposite. Like every artistic endeavor he took part in, he was really good at. Yeah. He seems really talented, uh, in yeah. general at, yeah, uh, art yeah. <laughs> yeah. in many, many different ways. And some of the poems he wrote hold a few hints about the man that he became. And I'm going to quote from young Stalin again. Sosolo's next poem, A Crazed Ode to the Moon, reveals more of the poet. A violent, tragically depressed outcast in a world of glaciers and divine providence is drawn to the sacred moonlight. In his third poem, Stalin explores the contrast between violence and man and nature and the gentleness of birds, music, and singers. The fourth is the most revealing. Stalin imagines a prophet not honored in his own country, a wandering poet poisoned by his own people. Now 17, Stalin already envisions a paranoic world where great prophets could only expect conspiracy and murder. 
So he's a, a, a little little kind of kind of goth. Yeah, a yeah, little yeah. Bit. yeah. He's got some yeah conflicts conflicts going so he's, on. He's very successful, and his later like the bank robbery that's one of his first famous actions. Part of why he's able to carry it out is that like one of the guards that he relies on for inside information is a huge fan of his poems. Oh wow! Um, yeah, 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 it's yeah, it's yeah. But he doesn't keep it up for very long. After like a year or so of incredible success, Joseph stops writing poetry. Um, and he later explains, I lost interest in writing poetry because it requires one's entire attention, a hell of a lot of patience. And in those days, I was like Quicksilver. Huh. So he, just, he, he just gets bored of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got too much uh, running through his brain to, yeah. to yeah. Because, yeah, you too need Too many like, fist fights to get in. Yeah. Exactly, right. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, poetry, yeah, you need like quiet reflection and uh, mm-hmm. peace. And uh, he's not, not got a lot of peace inside him. Yeah, that is not the guy he is. Yeah. Uh, it is likely that Stalin's interest in writing poems was overwritten by a new interest in revolutionary socialist literature. The seminary had a small group of rebellious students who would gather together at night and read forbidden works of political theory, eventually graduating to heavy hitters like the Communist Manifesto. Stalin and his friends joined a local club for reading illegal books, The Cheap Library, which basically worked as a book-sharing program. They also bought books from the local store, and Stalin would regularly steal books too, joking to his friends that he had expropriated them for the revolution. They would wait until lights out to read when the priests were all asleep. Most nights, Soso would stay up until the wee hours of the morning, sacrificing most of a night's sleep for the chance to read illegal literature. He was caught several times, usually reading books by Victor Hugo. His favorite book was The Patricide by Alexander Kazbegi, which featured a bandit hero named Koba. Koba was a Georgian partisan, basically a terrorist fighting for liberation from Russia. Young Stalin fell in love with Koba. One of his friends recalled, Koba became Soso's god and gave his life meeting. He wished to become Koba. He called himself Koba and insisted we call him that. His face shone with pride and pleasure when we called him Koba. The name meant a lot to Stalin. The vengeance of the Caucasus mountain peoples, the ruthlessness of the bandit, the obsession with loyalty and betrayal, and the sacrifice of person and family for a cause. It was a name he already loved, his substitute father. Years later, Stalin would adopt the name Koba as one of his revolutionary pseudonyms. Mm. Mm. So... He's basically like gets super into fucking fan fiction. Yeah, he's, and, a, he's like yeah, a fanboy yeah. dork. Yeah, he's a big old fanboy dork, <laughs> yeah. like they all are, like Hitler with his cowboy novels. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's all yeah. it's all the same. Like gamers who become Nazis and wrongly sort of like fetishize, I don't know, the God Emperor from Warhammer Forty Thousand. Right, and, it's all the yeah, larping like, yeah. crap. Yeah, and... it's this train in authoritarian personality. Like every personality, I guess. We all are vulnerable to it. Everybody picks a cool person from history or fiction. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah, everyone wants to be the special boy who does the special Everybody thing. Everybody wants to be the special boy who does the special yeah. thing. It is a powerful human need. Yes, it is. By the late 1890s, uh, Stalin had gone from romantic poet to Marxist fanatic. His reading had convinced him that, quote, the revolutionary proletariat alone is destined by history to liberate mankind and bring the world happiness. This hypothesis, he believed, would require trial and suffering and change, but would ultimately result in scientifically proven socialism. After a couple years of diligent reading, Joseph got frustrated by the fact that all his group did was read, though. He complained to the leader of the reading circle, a guy named Dev Diarini, and insisted that the group get involved in something real, something violent. Dev Diarini refused, and Stalin broke off to make his own study group, dedicated to fucking shit up as well as reading. 
The first outlet for his youthful rage would be a particularly aggressive seminary priest, nicknamed Black Spot for a hideous mole on his head. In 1897, Stalin had been caught 13 times reading banned books, and as a result, Black Spot launched a crusade to break up these secret reading circles. He would search the boys' footlockers and dirty laundry. Over the months, he grew obsessed with catching Stalin. And I'm going to quote again from young Stalin. At prayers, the boys had the Bible open on their desks and read Marx or Plekhanov, the sage of Russian Marxism, on their knees. In the courtyard stood a huge pile of firewood in which Stalin and Iramashvili would hide the banned works and where they would sit and read them. Abashidze, uh, who's black spot, waited for this and then sprang out to catch them, but they managed to drop the books into the logs. We were locked up in the detention cell at once, sitting late into the evening in darkness without food. But hunger made us rebellious, so we banged on the doors until the monk brought us something to eat. Stalin grew his hair out long as an act of protest deliberately targeting Black Spot. When the priest demanded he cut it, Stalin thumbed his nose at the man. This prompted the priest to crack down harder, and one night he finally succeeded in catching the reading circle in the act, writing filthy jokes in a notebook. The priest leapt into the room and grabbed the journal out of Stalin's hand, and young Stalin refused to give it up, and they wound up fighting over the book. The priest won. Black Spot marched Stalin back to his room and forced the boys to soak their journal with wax and then light it on fire. After this, he continued stalking Stalin, catching him again a few nights later reading forbidden books. This was enough to get a letter sent home to Keke, who rode to Tiflis immediately to talk with her son. They had what Joseph recalled as their first argument over this. At one point, Keke told him, My son, you're my only child. Don't kill me. How will you be able to defeat Emperor Nicholas II? Leave that to those who have brothers and sisters. Hurt by his mother's pain and fear, Joseph assured her that he was not a rebel. Keke called this his first lie. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Yeah, it was. Joseph's behavior continued to degrade, and his grades finally slipped too. He was still one of the best students at the seminary, but was no longer at the top of the class. Seminary journals note that he declared himself an atheist, refused to pray, talked in class, and would not take his hat off as a sign of respect to the monks. He received 11 warnings in the space of a few days, which prompted Blackspot and his fellow priests to search his possessions. Um, yeah, so he's, 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 uh, you could say acting out at this point. Yeah, I mean, he's being radicalized. (laughs) Yeah, he's, he's been radicalized and he's acting out. Yeah. Um, so, uh, this all kind of comes to a head, um, with, you know, sort of a fight between Stalin and this monk, the black spot, who is like his, his, like really the guy who pushes Stalin out of you know what might be considered a normal path in life and kind of on this revolutionary course like yeah. he was clearly his head was ha- leading him there but this is the guy that he sort of binds all of those feelings of frustration up in right it's like yeah you go to college and you read and learn and you like find these groups of people but you don't have yeah this sort of like uh this you you like uniting figure yeah that yeah. uh that the- pushes you yeah even farther yeah, Abishidze, the black spot, this like this this priest kind of becomes the symbol of everything that's wrong with society right. to Stalin. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to quote one more time from the book Young Stalin about sort of the last fight they have in the seminary. They sprinted back into the seminary just in time to see the inspector force open Stalin's trunk and find some forbidden works. Abishidze grabbed them and was triumphantly bearing his prize up the stairs when one of the group charged and rammed the monk, almost loosening his grip on the books. But Black Spot held on valiantly. The boys jumped on him and knocked the volumes out of his hands. Stalin himself ran up, seized the books, and took to his heels. He was banned from visiting town, and Kelby and his like the friend who had charged the priest was expelled. 
Yet, ironically, Soso's schoolwork seemed to improve. He received very good fours for most subjects and a five for logic. Even now, he still enjoyed his history lessons. Indeed, he so liked his history teacher, the only seminary teacher he admired, that he later took the trouble to save his life. Meanwhile, the black spot had lost control of Stalin, but could not restrain his own obsessive pursuit of this malcontent. They were getting closer to the breaking point. The monk crept up on him and peeked at him reading yet another forbidden book. He then pounced, taking the book from him, but Stalin simply wrenched it out of his hands, to the amazement of the other boys. He then went on reading it. Abishidze was shocked. Don't you know who I am? He shouted. Stalin rubbed his eyes and said, I see the black spot and nothing else. He had crossed the line. Mm. Yeah. Joseph was expelled in May of 1899. The official cause was non-appearance at exams, but this is not entirely accurate. For years, Joseph would claim that he'd been expelled from Marxist propaganda. His mother, however, claimed that he'd been taken out of school against his will by her when he caught pneumonia. But the real cause seems to be more banal than either of these. The black spot raised the tuition rates just high enough that Keke could no longer afford to pay for Joseph to stay enrolled. And this Mm. seems to be what forced him out of seminary. Interesting. But... This was not a great tragedy for young Stalin. He had long ago decided he was never going to become a priest. According to Sebastian Montfiore, Blackspot had, perversely, turned Stalin into an atheist Marxist and taught him exactly the repressive tactics, surveillance, spying, invasion of inner life, violation of feelings, in Stalin's own words, that he would recreate in his Soviet police state. And that, Cody, takes us up to Stalin's adulthood. Oh, what a fun childhood. (laughs) (laughs) J-Stall, baby. Yeah, little baby Joe doing crimes, learning yeah. lessons. Having oh, shit, secret, right? Having secret book clubs. Yeah, secret clubs. Secret book clubs. Beating up teachers. Secret priest fights. Mm-hmm. Sworn enemy is a priest. Yeah, yeah. Putting on his fight clothes. But <laughs> getting getting kidnapped a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Kidnapped uh, more times than any of the other students we've talked or uh, subjects we've talked about. Yeah, He's, he really got kidnapped a lot. Well, and I mean, you know, usually you get kidnapped once and that's kind of, that's, that's the one. Mm-hmm. Good shit. Yeah. Um, well, Cody, does this <laughs> change your opinion of our old buddy J-Stall at all? Um, I wouldn't say it's changed. I would say it's uh, more robust. It's bit some illuminations. Yeah? Um, yeah. Yeah. What are, uh, I mean, uh, sort of every step of the way you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay. He took yeah. that with he took that with him, carried that with mm-hmm. him for a long time. Yeah, that, that one stayed with him for yeah, a while. Yeah. yeah, and just sort of every action he took and every action taken against him was like, yep, all right, there you go. That's mm-hmm. Yeah, very illuminating. Cool shit. Cool shit. Well, Cody, yes, has sir. this convinced you to start your own Marxist utopia in the steppes of Russia? It convinced me more, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um right, we're gonna have well, we're gonna have fight days. Um, we're gonna it's ki- just going to be fight days. Fight days and yeah. kidnapping children. I mm-hmm. learned the opposite lesson there. That I, yeah. I've learned that yeah, kidnapping is good. So it, it is good. This yeah, has always yeah. been a pro kidnapping podcast. Okay, that's okay. I didn't. I didn't yeah. want to. I didn't want to presume. So no, Sophie. We're we're sponsored by the concept of kidnapping, right? I mean, yeah. It's mm-hmm. Our number one sponsor is the concept yeah. of kidnapping. Promo code. Good. Do it. Promo yeah. code. Excellent. D O I T. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Promo code kidnapping at the new app Kidnapper with no E. Takethechildren.com. Takethechildren.com. <laughs> oh, boy. Cody, you want to plug your pluggables? I can't wait. 
and so I won't. So I'll, I'll do it now. Uh, yeah, got a show called Some More News. You can check it out on YouTube. Uh, we got a Twitter. My personal Twitter is Dr. Mr. Cody. Uh, we have a podcast. My co-host Katie Stoll. Even more news. I've got another podcast with my co-host Katie Stoll and my other co-host Robert Evans called Worst Year Ever. You can check us oh, that out. That sounds on like Worst Year Pod. I mean, good. It's pretty good. Um, it's terrible in terms of uh, the subject matter and the time mm-hmm. in which it's uh, recorded. Um, and yeah, our patreon.com slash some more news if you want to support that. And I don't know. What's up, guys? How you doing? How you doing? The Democrats are losing the impeachment vote as we speak. Is it because the Democrats are losers? Apparently. Yeah. yeah, the Democrats, you know what Joseph Stalin wouldn't have done is taken no for an answer from Congress. But that's not a good thing. Mm, yeah, well, I wonder if maybe they, <laughs> yeah. so there, so his there, reaction is so, maybe not something that they should do. So by uh, the time yeah. this episode comes out on Thursday, because the Senate's voting on Wednesday, mm-hmm. big old losers. Oh, a bunch of losers, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they already lost the, the witness vote today. Our only hope is that the coronavirus makes it into a really nice D.C. steakhouse mm-hmm. and uh, thins out like, Congress a little bit. I feel like there's other things that could happen. Nope. Don't involve that. That, that is it. <laughs> I feel like that if that happens, I feel like if that happens, it'll spread more, and maybe maybe it won't be contained to just the few members of nope. Congress that we want to go away. Nope. No. Nope. All right. Nope. That's it. Promo code. That is virus. the only hope. And your only hope is to listen to more behind the bastards. <laughs> You can find us on the internet along with the sources for this episode at BehindTheBastards.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at IWriteOkay. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at, at @BastardsPod. Um, you know, that's the uh, that's the episode. Uh, go, go out into the world and remember the most important lesson of Joseph Stalin. Regularly fist fight all of your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Then catapult yeah. a cow. Yeah, catapult the hell out of a cow. Oh, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm so sorry, listeners. <laughs> Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.